It's what we need in church, more firecrackers. More explosives. Bless the Lord. Okay. Um, I've got a fair amount of material to get through, and I want to be quite quick because I want to finish with communion. But I want to invite you into a different space today and almost get you to do a fresh reading of the Easter story. And uh, so I, I could just tell it to you, but I may not shift you from your preconceived ideas. You know, Easter is very much a cultural phenomenon that was that's now in the shadows of what we used to call Christendom, when Christianity was the dominant culture of society. Who now knows that the dominant culture of Australia is no longer Christianity? You know, that that's now a very pluralistic sort of worldview. So I want to get you to reimagine the passion. And of course, for most people, the passion your mind immediately goes to the Mel Gibson film that's grossed some $364 million. And uh, you're a notable piece of work in so many ways. Brutal. I've, I've never watched it. I, I've Personally, I have just stayed away from it because I, I don't want it to become my substitute for the real thing, the Gospels. And so Mel Gibson has an interpretation of the Gospels with, I think, very overt Catholic emphases, which really does emphasize this whole idea of passion in a way of suffering. But we do live in this world now where, you know, it's Happy Easter, it's more about chocolate eggs, hot cross buns, and the Easter bunny, who's not funny because he just wants your money. And, and you know, the, the cross... You know, some of you ladies may wear a nice gold cross around your neck. And, you, you, you know, we just don't get it anymore because it's the equivalent of wearing a syringe that carries a lethal injection around your neck. It's the equivalent of wearing an electric chair around your neck. It's the equivalent of wearing waterboarding around your neck. It's the equivalent of wearing an instrument of torture around your neck. And, and we've moved so on, we've turned it into something that, oh, that's nice, I want one of those. And because the old joke is, you know, the, the man goes into a jewellery store and he says to the thing, I want to buy a cross. And the lady comes up, the little girl comes up and serves him and says, well, do you want one with the man on it or one without a little man on it and stuff? We now live in this season where what's Easter really about? Even the word Easter is actually the name of a Greek fertility goddess. So maybe we should call it Resurrection Sunday and not Easter. So I'm going to ask you to try and reimagine what the Easter story is about. And it's going to be quite a different narrative to the one that you are familiar with. So the big idea is that Jesus is not the least, he's the priest. He's not the victim, but the victor. He's not the helpless, but the hero. He's not the tragedy, but the triumph. He's the man in control. He is passionate about the plan, the eternal God plan 
that he would rescue a world that's been destroyed by sin. He was out to save the whales. He was out to save the environment, to save the atmosphere, to save the cosmos, to save the creation, to save the creature, to save even you and me. It's a big story. And he is God's man with God's plan and he carries it out to redeem this cosmos. And so... Next slide, thank you. So uh, springing from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke says that when his time came for Jesus to go to heaven, he set his face like flint. He became resolute. He made up his mind that he was going to go to Jerusalem. The stairway to heaven for Jesus was from Jericho, to Jerusalem, up six feet onto a cross into heaven. And he made up his mind that's what was going to happen. And this this points us out to an interesting phenomenon about the whole idea of passion. We talk about the passion of Christ, the movies based on the passion, and it really circles into a more modern idea of passion. If you talk to the normal person about passion, they're thinking about feelings, passionate feelings, feelings, oh, feelings. And some of you are feeling quite ill right now. <laughs> hope that's not a gun. <laughs> so for most people, passion is about developing certain feelings that grow in intensity to a point where you can no longer control your decisions and your actions. Mm-hmm. Am I telling you the truth? Can someone say amen? So for most people, passion is about getting into a zone where your emotions become so heightened and so intense that you then throw away what you might call wisdom or good choices or arrangements. Not always. It's not always negative, but it's feeling driven. You understand? That was the, that's the modern idea of being passionate. You know, I love my wife, but unfortunately I got into the wrong situation at the wrong time and I became too passionate and now we have a problem. That's the modern view, isn't it? But there's another way that that word passion, coming from the Greek word pathos, actually is described. And this is the traditional view, the historical view of passion. Passion is about something you feel so strongly about that you make a commitment to pursue the goal, to stay on the course to be focused i'm passionate about my music you hear what i'm saying i'm passionate about learning of the greek language i'm passionate about armadale i am i'm passionate about armadale i'm passionate about the lost i'm passionate it's it's cause driven not feeling driven you see there's a difference and i want to talk to you today that the true passion of jesus isn't him bleeding upon a cross It's him marching up to get the crown of heaven and to set you and I free forever. So I want to lay just a little bit of foundational ground. So I want to get through a bit of scripture. Next slide. Just So I want you just to see Jesus is in control here. He has not been manipulated. He's not some poor pathetic. He's prophetic. He's not a loser. He's the winner. He's actually in control of what's going on. And it's a huge, huge takeaway for us today. doesn't matter how much life might seem to be out of control. He is still 
in control. It doesn't matter. You might think you're in that washing machine. Do, 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 do. You don't know up from down. God is still in control. So look, right, right from the very beginning, John chapter 2, and the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove, prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's pretty audacious, isn't it? That's a huge statement to make. Kill me, give me three days, I'm going to come back to life. I mean, that is a sign. This is not someone out of control. This is someone in control who's the master of his own destiny and he's chosen God's plan. He's chosen God's plan. He's chosen God's plan. Not his feelings, but God's plan. What they exclaimed, sorry, they exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days. Of course, they didn't get it. And Jesus explained, but when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. So Jesus knows what he's going to do. Right at the very beginning, he knows he's on a mission. That mission is he's going to die for the sins of the world. And it's not the end, but he'll come back to life and he'll go and be able to redeem it before his father. Next slide. Thank you. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. We spoke about that on Friday. How the Jews were horrified because when they read the, the titulus crucis on the cross, there is the letters Yahweh above the cross of Jesus. No wonder they're cross. And they, at that point, they wanted to pick up stones and throw him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. So we had this happening over and over again. People are wanting to do things to Jesus, to harm him, to kill him, and he just gets away. He does what he wants when he wants. Next slide. Thank you. Look at this one. The Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up. This is not the normal picture that me growing up as a Catholic God of Jesus, of him being dragged along by circumstance, by sin, by the hate of the world, a pathetic creature who's out of control. The picture of Scripture, if you can reread it, is that Jesus is the called one, the Emmanuel, the incarnate Son of God on a mission that he does fulfill in minute detail, in minute detail, according to the plan. For this is what my Father's commanded. Next slide. Thank you. So Jesus found a young donkey and he rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, do not be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, you need to understand that Jesus actually knows his Bible really well. And he knows that in the book of Zechariah, there's a prophecy. This prophecy talks about the return of the Messiah and how when the Messiah returns, this prophecy was made 700 years before this event, this prophecy has the king, the Messiah, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. So when Jesus hopped on that donkey to ride into Jerusalem on the high feast day of the day of Passover, do you think he knew what he was doing? Did you know, do you think he would be welcomed as a king? 
that the crowds would go ballistic, tear their clothes, pull down the trees, cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, our king is coming. Did he knew that was going to happen? Absolutely. So here is a man who knows what he is doing, is making decisions that are positioning him and pointing him towards the cross and towards redemption of our world. And so his disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of the prophecy. Jesus understood his disciples were, well, as Ben Witherington III says, good theologian, the disciples. Turn to your name and say, disciples. <laughs> After Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead and telling them, telling others about it. So that's going to increase some public opinion, isn't it? I mean, if you heard, you know, someone that was well known to us that died in the church and that Pastor Karen had came along, laid hands on them and they came back to life, church would be full, wouldn't it? And there'd be people queuing outside of a door, you know, that... It, it, it changes the atmosphere when the dead come back to life. So this is the reason so many went out to meet him because they heard about this miraculous signs. And the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Who's in control? Jesus is in control. Next slide. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father... Save me from this hour. So you do get these human sides of Jesus walking through it because he was fully human. So he asked the question, should I not do this? But no, makes up his mind pretty quickly. Oh no, but for this very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do it again. So here's a voice of confirmation coming from heaven as well. Next slide. Jesus had finished saying all these things, and he said to the disciples, as you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So Jesus has got a plan, hasn't he? What's his plan? Passover's coming, two days, and I need to be killed on the Passover. That's the plan. This is a miracle. Can a human being engineer the time of their death in this sort of a way? To be crucified by the Romans. Can you engineer that? But it's very important because the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, says that the 14th day of Nisan, the first uh, month of the Jewish calendar, is to be a perpetual, a perpetual high feast, a Passover. And you should keep the Passover for generations. Jesus said, I need to die on the 14th of Nisan because I am the Passover lamb. I am the lamb that takes away all the sins of the world. He can't be killed another day, otherwise he's not fulfilling scripture. Do you understand? Who's in control here? Jesus is in control. He knows when he needs to die. He also knows how he needs to die. He can't be stoned. If he's stoned, he's not then fulfilling the prophecy that we find in Numbers where the serpent is lifted up and as people looked at it, Jesus says, as the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw people. He needs to be crucified. He needs to be lifted up. 
Who's in control? Jesus. Um, at the same time, the leading priests and the elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But their decision is this, that not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Scholars say that at this time, it's one of the high compulsory feasts, it's uh, one of the high days in the Jewish world, that the population of Jerusalem at that time would swell by uh, probably up to about a million people. So the entire population of Jerusalem at that time would be about two million people. Now, if you're the police force, if you're the security force, and you've got a million tourists coming in who are religiously motivated, it's, it's a sensitive time, isn't it? And then you've got this, this person, Jesus, going around who's raising people from the dead, opening up blind eyes, getting the lame to walk, who's saying he's the Messiah, you may have a potential problem on your hands. Do you hear the tension? Please, someone. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying hard. Do you hear the tension? <laughs> Thank you. So there's two wills here. There's Jesus' will is, I need to die two days from now. And the will of the, the priests and the scribes and the Sanhedrin is, we don't want him to die now. We want to kill him any other time. We want to do it secretly, but not now. It's the Passover. Well, God planned that it would be a perpetual sacrifice on the 14th of Nisan. And Jesus is on his way. So, next slide. So, we know that Judas had planned to betray Jesus. But often when we read this particular narrative, we don't see who's in control. It was not Judas's decision to betray Jesus on the day of the Passover. That was Jesus's decision. He calls him out. When are you going to betray me? Who's going to betray me? Well, he doesn't embarrass the person. Don't you love Jesus? He doesn't embarrass people. But he's calling out the sin. And then uh, he says to Judas, hey, whatever you've got to do, go do it now. Go do it quickly. So the scribes and the Pharisees have just decided they don't want to do this now. Oh, sorry. Didn't mean to spit at you. So. <laughs> you need a windscreen wipe. <laughs> sorry. They don't want to do it now, but Jesus has forced the hand. Judas now goes to the scribes and the Pharisees. The exchange is made again. He's sold for 30 pieces of silver. Silver always speaks of redemption. It was prophesied again 700 years ago. Just on Zechariah's prophecies alone, you can prove the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ in incredible, incredible accurate detail. So next slide. So after saying these things... Jesus crossed the Kindron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew the place because Jesus had gone there before with the disciples. The leading priests and the Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers. So there's about 200 plus soldiers. It's not, it's not just half a dozen people. It's a lot. 200 plus soldiers plus the temple guards... And uh, to accompany him. And when the blazing torches and lanterns, can, can you see that in the dark of the night? Do you hear the clang of the armor, the clash of things, the lights and the torches? This is a whole army coming to arrest Jesus. 
Now, who's in control? Well, look what happens. Jesus, you mean? They arrived at the altar. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen, so he stepped out. He stepped forward to meet them. Isn't that amazing? Oh, here comes 300 unarmed guards. Hi, guys. <laughs> Fancy meeting you here. That's, it's, it's, this, Jesus is not pathetic. He's not out of control. He is the peace of, Prince of Peace. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And he's acting as our Redeemer in all these aspects. And not only that, says, who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazarene, they replied. I am. We spoke about that on Friday. Jesus said, and I am he. And they drew back. Can you imagine? 300 guards approximately, armed to the teeth. And uh, Jesus just says, I am. And they all start to go back and fall over. I mean, I get the picture of dominoes. You know, the first guy gets slain in the spirit and they dum 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 And they're all over. Who's in control? Sorry, I spat again. Sorry. <laughs> Who's in control? This is not normally the picture of the passion, the other passion. This is the other passion, which is I have a call of God upon my life and I'm going to walk that out. One step, another step. doesn't matter how hard it is. Quoting Isaiah, Luke 9, 51, quoting Isaiah 52, he said his face is flint. You know, you're sitting. When flint hits steel, sparks fly. Sometimes when you fulfill God's vision, God's plan for your life, sparks can fly. But you stay with your passion. Stay with the right passion, not with those feelings that take you to other, to other places. Uh, so, look, there he is. He's now negotiating with 300 armed guards who have come to actually arrest him. And, and let's, let's look at the conversation. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And they replied, Jesus the Nazarene, I told you that I am he. The he's not there in the English. So he's making a reference to the divine name of God. And Jesus said, since I am the one you want, let these others go. I mean, who is he? One against 300 is saying, let, let's, let the other turkeys go, the disciples. And he did this to fulfill his own statement, I did not lose a single one of these you've given me. Simon Peter, he draws a sword. Don't you love Simon Peter? And he goes and he slashes off the right ear of Malchus. Now, a point that most good Bible students will tell you, this was not him showing really good accuracy. This was showing actually that he missed. Okay? So what Peter was trying to do was take off the head. Malchus, seeing sword come, went like this. You just got the ear off, you see. And what does Jesus do? He says, stop this nonsense. Put your swords away. Go home. Picks up the ear and puts it back on Malchus's head. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Who's in control? This is certainly not the Mel Gibson version. Uh, shall I not drink this cup of suffering that Father's given me? We, we've, some of the best things in life will come come out of suffering. Well, who, who likes suffering? Oh, no one. 
Not a single hair. <laughs> I don't like it myself. But some of the best things come out of suffering. Suffering. Uh, next slide. We need to get you out here on time. Uh, then now he's taken before Pilate. Then they take him away and judge him by your own law. So Pilate is now, he is now uh, upset, cross, that he's been manipulated to execute Jesus. He can see what's going on. He's tried everything he can to get rid of the, the problem, uh, release a um, Barabbas as a substitute, take him to King Herod because he's a Galilean. Uh, you know, he's doing everything he can to get out of this and he resists it. And he has this very famous conversation. Pilate told him, only the Romans are permitted to execute someone. The Jewish leaders replied, this fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Jesus knows what he's doing. I have a plan for my life and I am going to fulfill God's plan. Whether it's easy, whether it's hard, whether it's nice, I'm going to obey God's plan. That's passion that changes the world. Then Pilate went to his headquarters and he called for Jesus to be brought forth. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. And Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell this about me? So who's on trial now? <laughs> you see what's happened? Pilate thinks he's putting Jesus on trial when in reality it's the other way around. Jesus instantly put Pilate on trial. Who's in control? Am I a Jew, Pilate retorted? Your own people and your leading priests brought me here for the trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. And on Friday I showed you how that then resulted in the uh, titulus crucis and the offense to the Jewish people because it meant in the Jewish language, in the Hebrew language, he was called Yahweh by abbreviation. Yeshua ha Nazarene, the, um, the, the Melech, Yehuda. Who's in control? Who's in control of your life? It's a good question, isn't it? Next slide. Thank you. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. Pilate heard this and he was more frightened than ever. So who's frightened here? Who's concerned? Is it Jesus? No, it's not Jesus. It's actually the, the governor. He's the one who's frightened. He said his wife had nightmares about this and communicated, have nothing to do with this man. He is frightened now that he is about to commit a terrible mistake. So Jesus, he took Jesus back to the headquarters again and he asked, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answers. Why do you not talk to me? Pilate demanded. <laughs> Don't you realize I have power? Ooh. That felt good, didn't it? <laughs> I have power to release you or to crucify you. And Jesus says, no, you don't. <laughs> you have no power at all. You have no power at all, except that which is given to you 
from above. So you've got two choices of reality here. You've got this level of reality where you can control your life, your decisions, for better, for worse. Or you've got this other dimension, this hyper dimension where God lives, where there are angels and spirits. And here there are promises and penalties. There's a whole different matrix there. You get to choose who's in control. Uh, Next one. Thank you. And Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved. And he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. He said to the other disciple, here is your mother. So here he's, he's on the cross. Now, yes, we know it's, his back's been split apart by the Roman whip and he's hanging there on the nails and it's all terrible. But he's also conducting adoption services. He's also figuring out mum's pension scheme. This is not someone who's desperate out of control. And then he goes on to say, here is your mother. And he took on his disciple and he knew. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. Hallelujah. And to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. So why did he say I'm thirsty? To fulfill scripture. So that's not often the way it comes out in the more traditional view of the passion. He says, I'm thirsty. Now, he could have been thirsty as well. But the reason he said, I'm thirsty, is because he's fulfilling Scripture. In fact, he's quoting a psalm. He's actually quoting Psalm 22, the psalm of the suffering Messiah. This this is powerful. If you can get this, this can really help you enormously. When he's at his most extreme point on his worst day, You know what's filling his heart and his language? The promises of God. What is memorized from Scripture, what the Bible says about the suffering Messiah is what's coming out of his heart. Wow. So the next uh, slide. Thank you. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, the same psalm. And I have, uh, I think, previously admitted... I think I preached this text so wrong for so many years because I took it as God being helpless upon the cross, Jesus being the Son of God, excuse me, being on that cross. And then there is that moment where he cries out in Hebrew, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I preached it, God... I can I can understand the scribes and the Pharisees rejecting me. That I get. I can understand Judas rejecting me. I can understand the disciples rejecting me. But Lord, I can't understand why you, my heavenly Father, would reject me. And that's the way I used to preach it. But if Psalm, if he's already quoting Psalm 22 to fulfil Scripture, maybe all he's doing is quoting Scripture. And he's quoting the whole psalm. He would have known the whole psalm. And you know what the psalm ends up with? Next slide. <clears throat> so the psalmist begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are people looking upon my bones? But it finishes off with God resurrecting this person as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's full of hope. It's full of promise. It's what Jesus believed, what was happening to him then and there. 
It finishes off. The whole world will acknowledge the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, that's Jesus on the cross, and return to him and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. We're doing it today, guys. And the royal power belongs to the Lord. And he rules all the peoples. Hallelujah. He wasn't some pathetic loser on the cross. He was a man with God's plan who fulfilled every point of the law, every prophecy, every prediction. No word was broken. No promise of God was lost. He fulfilled it to the maximum. He's king, he's Lord, he's saviour, he's redeemer, he's soon coming king. Hallelujah. Next slide. The sixth saying of the cross is it's telestai, it is finished on 1920. And it's an accounting term. It means it's done, it's completed, it's paid in full. The debt is over. Jesus finished it. The transaction was dealt with. My sin your sin, the sin of the world, was paid for in full. That's what he's saying on the cross. It's done. He's not saying, oh, it's done. He's saying, it's done. I've finished the mission. I have run my race. I've done what I was born to do. And now, God, the plan of salvation has been complete. It's finished, but it's not over. You understand? It's finished. The victory's been won. The account's been paid, but it's still not over because the work of the gospel, the preaching of the good news of Jesus, is still going forth into the world today. Next slide. Time is running. Thank you. The last thing Jesus said upon the cross was, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is an act. It's a voluntary act where Jesus says, I've paid the debt, Lord, and now I surrender my spirit. He had to let it go. His life was not taken from him. He gave it. He released his life to his father. He was always the king of kings and the lord of lords. There's a passion that changes the world. And we still celebrate it today. You know, we used to, in the Catholic Church, have the 12 stations of the cross and you have to spend 40 days of Lent and, you know... In, in extreme circles, you'd actually flagellate yourself. You'd get your own whip. You'd carry your own crosses around. You had to give up something because it was all about somehow I need to appreciate how much Jesus suffered. And yes, there's another reading about the suffering of Jesus. But the, one, the other reading we're talking about today is, yes, he suffered, but he actually knew what he was doing. He controlled everything along the way. He healed ears. <laughs> he pushed the soldiers back. He engineered the court and how was to die and went there so that he could complete the mission. It's completed, it's done, it's finished. Next slide. Thank you. So, very famous. Uh, uh, I'm going to teach you some tongues today. If you don't know, speak in tongues, this is German, okay? It's Oberamagero. No, it's Oberamagero. Passion play. Uh, now, it's a little village in Bavaria, and back in 1643, it was the bubonic plague. The bubonic plague is estimated to have killed about 75 million people over its three major outbreaks. Uh, at times, the kill rate was as much as 90%. And in 
It was uh, extremely virulent uh, bacteria and uh, would often be transmitted through fleas and cats, etc. The incubation period was 10 days and then in the next 14 days, a person would normally die. So could you imagine a ship coming into Fremantle carrying a few fleas and then a few people having flu, people having a bad flu for seven days and then in the next 14 days they slowly get necrosis where the, the, the extruding parts of their body turn black. That's why they call it the black death. I was going to show you a photo but it would be inappropriate for me to give you such a graphic image. And, uh, and within 14 days they die. So in a space of three weeks, Perth could go and only 10% of our population would be left. And could you imagine this creeping across, didn't creep across Europe, whole populations were wiped out. So fast, so quick. They call it the, the Black Death. And uh, so this, this, this sort of like bird creature here to your, to your right-hand side, that was actually a, an early hazmat suit. So what they've done is they've developed a leather sort of casing, they've put uh, sort of like glass portals in it, and the beak is actually a place where they stuff straw and sweet-smelling fragrances like mint and uh, you know, lavender and things so they couldn't smell the dead bodies. Because the people who had to go out and just to collect the dead bodies would be usually dead a week later and then dead a week later and dead a week later. Well, this little village, uh, they were having about one death to the, the, the black pay, about one in a thousand, and then it came up to about one in a hundred. And so the village promised, they, they had a public prayer meeting, they sought God with prayer and fasting, and they made God a promise that if God spared the village from the Black Plague, the Black Plague, they would hold a passion play every 10 years to celebrate what happened. And uh, God did respond. So the, the death rates improved greatly. It was miraculous. The doctors have no ex- explanation for it. Uh, the, the death rates from the Black Plague almost became non-existent in this village, and yet whole, the whole population around them is dying. And so for every 10 years, you've got a village putting on a passion play. And the whole village gets involved in the play. So you've got to imagine, it's like if this was an Armadale, every 10 years, all the Armadalians get together and we do a play. So the cast is huge. It's, you know, two and a half thousand people. And, you know, I think you'd make a good Herod. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody gets to play, Roman soldiers, part of the crowd, and sit. And uh, it's only ever done on the zeros. So the next time it will be held is in 2020. And people from all around the world go to see this passion play. Passion. Passion. What sort of a passion is leading us? Is it feelings? Or is it calling, mission, and why we are on planet Earth? Two greatest days in your life. It's the day you're born and the day you figure out why you were born. It's really important. So uh, fascinating little uh, cliche there. And, uh, but it does focus on this other form of the passion, the suffering side. Next slide. Very quickly, I tell you what, don't live a dull, boring life. 
Don't just try and get faster. You know, the rats are running pretty fast these days. Just don't be a better rat. <laughs> please. <laughs> try and find your purpose, please. <laughs> why are you here? Seriously, why are you here? Why are you breathing? Why are you alive? Why do you have this gift? Why do you have this talent? Find your passion. Not feeling-based, but mission-based. Find your passion and then follow your passion with all of your heart. It may include suffering. It may include the hard things. But in doing so, the world will be better. And I think that is our last slide. Thank you. Wonderful. Fantastic. We're going to have communion. John, if you could just come up and play something on the keys.